the antidote is to spend some time in a natural environment or at least in an environment where based on what you're seeing with your eyes you have no idea what year it is there's a timelessness to what you're looking at i can see right now that i have lights and i have cameras and i have all sorts of things that tell me it's roughly 2021 but when i go later on today to the beach for a run that is the same beach the same run that people could have done a thousand years ago in theory and there's a timelessness to that Welcome to Freedom Matters, where we explore the intersection of technology, productivity, and digital well-being. I'm your host, Georgie Powell, and each episode we'll be talking to experts in productivity and digital wellness. We'll be sharing their experiences on how to take back control of technology. We hope you leave feeling inspired, so let's get to it. This week, I'm in conversation with Adam Alter, a professor of marketing whose research focuses on judgment and decision-making and social psychology, with a particular interest in the sometimes surprising effects of subtle environmental cues on human cognition and behavior. Adam is the New York Times best-selling author of two books, Irresistible, which considers why so many people today are addicted to many behaviors, from incessant smartphone use to video game playing and online shopping, and Drunk Tank Pink, which investigates how hidden forces in the world shape our thoughts, feelings and behaviours. Today we'll be discussing factors which shape our decision making, why technology is so influential and some approaches to resist the irresistible. Adam, welcome to Freedom Matters. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Georgie. I appreciate it. To kick off, I think it'd be really helpful to understand a little bit about what you're interested in and what the broad themes of your research have been throughout your career. Yeah, so I've bounced around a lot. I came to the US from Australia to do a PhD almost 20 years ago. And during that PhD, I met lots of researchers and ultimately gravitated towards human judgment and decision making. And I was especially interested in the consumer behavior elements there. So how do people spend their time, their money, other resources? What drives them to engage in certain kinds of behaviors? And not just how to extract money from people, but once we as consumers are spending money and time, how do we spend it in the service of well-being, in the service of happiness and productivity, social connection, fulfillment, meaning, all of these really important um, ultimate out- outcome variables. And so that's a very loose description of what I do. And I, it has to be loose because I, I study things in a lot of different areas. Adam's first book, Drunk Tank Pink, explores how there are different influences in our personal lives and environment that inform our decisions daily. This is excellent context for later understanding how technology can influence us. I asked Adam to provide an overview of the findings of Drunk Tank Pink. The big central argument is that we have this illusion of moving through life with purpose, as though we are directing and guiding our decisions and all sorts of different outcomes. And in fact, when you look carefully at the way we end up in certain positions, jobs, in relationships we're in, making the decisions we make, much of those outcomes is driven by forces that are hidden from us. They are having unconscious influences. And, and the book is a sort of compendium of what those influences might be. And it tries to basically make the argument that you're a billiard ball bouncing around and you don't always know where the cue is and how it's hitting you and why it's hitting you in any particular direction. So that was the first book. And, and I think it, it nat- very naturally led to the next one, which was looking at technology, because the first book was the question was, what are all these things that are shaping us? And the next book was, what's the biggest thing that's shaping us today? And that, to me, was was technology. And before we get on to technology, what are these other things? What else are we influenced by without even perhaps realising it? 
Yeah, so I, I organized the book from these very small ones to very large ones. So I started thinking about things like the words we use to describe concepts or the names we give ourselves, our children, companies, even hurricanes. There's evidence that you name a hurricane a particular way and that's supposed to just be a, an idle placeholder for the hurricane. But it turns out that people who share the initial of the hurricane donate more to the hurricane. So even these sort of trivial decisions end up having a huge effect on, on all sorts of outcomes in ways that people I think are surprised by. So that's on the small end. There are also social influences like culture, the presence or absence of other people in a room or in a context. And then at the very, the biggest end, things like the physical environment, temperature, the weather, the color you paint a room, all of these factors have a huge effect on, on decision-making. And, and I was trying to understand the extent of those effects. Hence the title. <laughs> Hence the title. So Drunk Tank Pink is this pink color that was used to paint the inside of of uh, drunk tanks or jail cells, temporary jail cells that housed people who were drunk or unruly. And what they discovered was this color pink pacified the people who were put in these cells. Now, there's some question about the robustness of the effect. Is it still reliable today? This was about 40 years ago they discovered this effect. And uh, I thought it was fascinating, just the idea that using a color to paint the inside of a jail cell could dramatically change behavior. And mm. yet there's some evidence that it seems to do that. So there's a whole breadth of environmental and personal factors that you look at in that book. But as you said, you then went on to write Irresistible, which is just about the influence of technology. So why is technology the biggest of all in influencing the decisions and judgments that we make? I think one really useful objective metric for the importance of an influence on our lives and our on, on our behavior is how much time do we engage with it. And you know, if you look at the rise of, of screen time, we spent about 18 minutes on our phones in 2007, which was the year that the iPhone was introduced. So 18 minutes on the cell phone on the average day. And now, 14 years later, that number is, depending on the demographic you're looking at, between four and six hours mm. to spend a quarter, a third, or even more than a third of your waking time every day in front of a device suggests that it has a colossal influence on your psychological experience of the world. And so to me, it was critical to understand it. I also think its effects go beyond the moments you're staring at the screen. The interactions we have on our screens influence our welfare, the, the self-image we hold, the way we think of ourselves, uh, especially among teenage girls and to some extent teenage boys as well. You can spend a few hours a day on Instagram and that'll have a, a lasting effect. That'll probably shape the way you think about yourself for the rest of your life, even if you stop using Instagram today. So I think no matter the demographic, no matter the platform, technology has a colossal influence on our experience of the world. And so I, I wanted to understand it. Given our recent conversations with Nicholas Carr and then Nir Eyal, I want to continue to explore this question. How addicted are we to tech? A third of Adam's Irresistible is about the extent of behavioural addiction that we are displaying towards our devices. How does he define this addiction and how widespread is it? Sure, yeah, I'll just start by saying I have immense respect for Nia's work and for Nicholas's work. I think both books are tremendous and the, the work they do is incredible. I actually teach an MBA class at NYU and Nia was very generous to come into the classroom and we had a, a long uh, debate about these issues. So we, we see eye to eye on many things, but obviously not on everything. So behavioral addiction to me is very much like substance addiction, but it doesn't involve a substance. So if you can engineer a behavior to make it sufficiently compelling, that it hits all the right psychological notes, the right neurological notes, you can make it feel to the perceiver just as difficult to resist, and it can have just as much damage perhaps as substances do. The way I define behavioral addiction is it's an experience that you're engaging and that you want to engage in. It's very important that you have that strong want in the short term. 
despite the fact that you recognize that it's having negative effects for you in at least one way. And that could be socially, it could be psychologically, it could lead to boredom, to anxiety, to loneliness, to depression. You could be bullied or it could have effects on your finances. So you could end up spending huge amounts of money that you don't intend to spend, which a lot of people experience, or it could have even physical consequences. So that's that's really those two features are critical that short term, you really want to do the thing long term, recognize that it's bad for you and it is actually bad for you. And that to me is the same as substance addiction. You really want to use the substance or do the thing that that you're addicted to. And uh, you recognize that in the long run, it's actually bad for you. Yeah. Okay. And so how prevalent do you think it is? I think it's pretty prevalent. I, I One way to assess this is uh, if you're speaking to an audience in person, which I haven't been doing very much of late for obvious uh, pandemic-related reasons. But if I go into a big room and say there are one to 3,000 people, I'll ask people to put up their hands and I'll say, all right, I'm going to ask you to put up your hand when you hear a number that makes sense to you. We're going to go from one to 10, where one is I'm completely happy with my technology use. I think technology is only wonderful. It's only improved my life and I want to change nothing to 10. Technology is destroying my life. It's a huge problem and I have to change everything about my relationship with it. And we talk about what those points in the middle might be. And what you find is for most people in that room, it's between a six and an eight. So it's it's very clearly at the top half of the scale that people are unhappy with it. And then they, you know, when they they actually start speaking about it, they'll say, it's not just me, it's my friends, my family, my loved ones. It's about the whole social network that they're engaged in offline. I don't have an exact figure because I think it's hard to hard to know exactly what the right metric is to use. But I would say more than half the adult population on reflecting says, this is a problem for me. Are they all medically addicted? No. I don't think this is medical grade where you need treatment. I think it's a malady of society and that we all just need better ways to deal with it. And so on that, I agree with Mira Al. I think we the best thing we can do is, is empower ourselves, become indistractable, as he says. Um, but yes, I think for a lot of us, this is a problem. Yeah. And as you say, behavioral addiction is so easy to hide in many ways. It is easy to hide and impossible to escape from. You can't live a complete life today and say, I'm just going to abstain from all tech. You can't travel. You can't be in the workplace. You can't connect with friends completely. It's really insidious that way. A big part of Irresistible is obviously about all the different hooks that the technology companies use to keep us engaged in their products. And you talk about goals, feedback, progress, escalation, cliffhangers, social interaction. You wrote this book in 2016, 2017, and obviously in the last five years, the market's become more competitive. They're even better at holding our attention than ever before. Are you seeing other methods that these tech companies are also now using to try to, you know, to hold us in this very competitive environment? Yeah, so they they engage in a process known as a friction audit. And what they basically do is they'll take their products and try to find every single friction point that might lead people away from the product. So if you're Facebook and you have a a feed that pops up on the screen, you might notice that every time a particular box appears, people slow down by a few hundred milliseconds, and then you can predict that they're more likely to leave the platform after that happens. So you know that you've caused friction. So what do you do? You try to intervene and you try to sand down that particular friction point. You find that people on average spend an extra few minutes a day on Facebook. If you do that over and over and over again, you do uh, repeated friction audits. What you end up doing is you create this kind of weaponized version of your platform, whether it's a game, a social media app, whatever it is. And so uh, what you're essentially trying to do is to eradicate stopping cues or friction points that, that might otherwise suggest, hey, it's time for you to go do something else, like a gentle nudge to move on. 
And so that's a large part of what I think the biggest tech companies are doing constantly is they're, they're trying to think about how they can sand whatever friction points down that, that do exist. So that's the holistic answer, which is that they're constantly trying to make the platform less sticky so that or more sticky because yeah. it's less sticky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. More sticky because it's less sticky. So you, you glide through the process of using it and therefore it becomes more sticky. And networks become faster too, so they're less likely to be the limiting factor, although probably still, I don't know whether they're more of the limiting factor or the apps and services are themselves now. It's difficult to tell sometimes. Yes. I mean, the infrastructure now is so advanced that it's almost never the infrastructure's fault. You know, for a long time in the the first decade of the 2000s, the infrastructure was the limiting factor. You know, you'd create this fantastic platform and then something like a YouTube, which came about in 2005, couldn't have existed before 2005 because we didn't have broadband in the same way. We didn't have widespread Wi-Fi in the same way. There was no mobile communication in the same way. Mm. So now we're at the point where almost every platform can operate using the infrastructure we have. I think where we still fall short is um, augmented and virtual reality. Mm -hmm. So the infrastructure isn't quite there to, to support those platforms and it will get there, fortunately or unfortunately or both. There's this interesting illusion known as the end of history illusion, which suggests that where we are right now always feels like a destination, like we've reached a kind of end point of sorts. And the end point that I think we think we've reached is phones are these incredibly intrusive devices. They have affected us in all sorts of different ways. But I think they, they're going to look quaint in 10 years or 20 years or 30 or 40 or 50, because instead of having phones, we'll all be walking around with devices implanted in our heads and in our bodies and will be able to just seamlessly move from the real world into a virtual world at any moment. And you won't have to put on goggles. There'll probably be something that happens with your eyes and suddenly you look in a particular direction and suddenly you're in the virtual world. No one else knows that you're there. And you're completely unreachable because for that moment, you may be physically in one place, but you're virtually in another. That to me is a far more concerning situation than the one we're in now. I think we're headed there. And I think one of the reasons why it's so important for us to grapple with, with phone technology though it will one day seem quaint, is that we're building up a set of tools to deal with it. And I hope we're building up legislation and ways of managing the tech companies now so that when they become even more powerful than they are, when they have an even bigger effect on our lives, we've developed some broad coping skills that can be applied to whatever technology happens to emerge. I completely agree. So when technology you're saying is the most influential because we spend so much time around it, how is it influencing us? What impacts are actually having on our decisions and our daily judgments? I think the nature of these effects varies quite a lot for, for different people. But um, I think the biggest effects when you do a sort of psychological audit are things like changing your threshold for boredom and your openness to actually think. What, when you have a device that visits itself upon you in every even brief moment of boredom, think about getting into a, a lift, an elevator now, and you stand in that elevator for, for 10 seconds and every single person who's in the elevator for 10, 10 seconds opens the phone, has a look at the phone. We do not tolerate any moments of any social awkwardness, any moments of uh, boredom where there's not an obvious thing that we're supposed to be paying attention to. What we do is we paper those moments over with a phone. I think that has really big effects in, in aggregate. If you trace a lot of invention, inventiveness, creativity, um, lateral thinking, a lot of it, people say, oh, yeah, there was this moment I was sitting in the park one day and then I had this big uh, epiphany and now here's, here's this incredible product that uh, has changed the world. And I think if you don't allow yourself to have those proverbial moments in the park, I just don't think a lot of that happens anymore. So I think we're changing the way society functions in, a, in fairly profound ways. 
And then, of course, there's all the all the social effects. It seems like there's the, the use of phones is especially among teens associated with rises in depression, anxiety, suicide among teens, which is mm. horrific. Mm. Now, there are a lot of very profound effects that are very troubling. And then there are obviously some that are more, I, I guess, pedestrian, but certainly the effects are broad. Yeah, yeah. We'll come back to how you manage that in a minute. But I wanted to go back to a quote that you just recently put on Twitter, which said, if tobacco companies said, we know kids are smoking the bad stuff, so we're making a kiddie cigarette that has less tar and less nicotine, <laughs> would you see that cigarette as a dangerous gateway to smoking or a tool for child welfare? Um, now replace tobacco companies with Facebook slash Instagram. I mean, you obviously feel really strongly about this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, feel, and, I feel immensely strongly about it. Yeah, I have a four-year-old and a five-year-old and the idea that there could ever be a kid-friendly version, a gateway version of Instagram that gets kids into the platform now so that they can then graduate to the fully toxic many milligrams of tar, micrograms of tar, whatever version of Instagram that's available to adults, that's that's terrifying and it's completely dystopian. And also the idea that uh, Adam Masseri, the, the uh, head of Instagram, coming out and saying, we know all your kids are getting onto Instagram anyway, so why don't we create a version that's just for them so they can use that one instead? It's just absurd to me. Yeah. And what do you do personally? I mean, not just with the technology part, but with all these other factors you've identified are influencing your daily decisions and judgment. Have you changed the way that you live? How do you manage it all? It's, I think anyone would be paralysed if you tried to take into account every <laughs> single influence. You wouldn't be able to move forward in life. You wouldn't be able to go anywhere or do anything. So I don't do that. What I do is I, I really ask myself, how big an influence is this particular influence? You know, if it's profound, if it's having a really big effect on me or it's likely to have a big effect on me, like technology, I'll try to make some changes. If it's something like when you go into a room that's painted red, your heart races a little bit more and you're more likely to, for example, buy things. So people buy more products in a red store than they do in a store that's painted blue. Well, then I'll go into a store that's red and say, I recognize that this store is red and I'll just be a little more thoughtful about what I'm doing, but I'm not going to change my behavior dramatically. So for me, it's always this analysis of how big the effect could be, how profound it is, and then deciding whether it's something that's that warrants intervention. Mm -hmm. And if it is, then make that intervention. And if not, don't worry about it. Just get on with your life and be mindful. I think so much of it is just recognizing that these effects are there. And then once you know that they're there and that these things are having an effect on you, you can decide whether and how much to, to try to curb them. And so with technology, how do you manage your relationship with technology? There's an old idea in psychology known as propinquity. And propinquity suggests that the closer things are in physical space to you, the bigger effect they have on your psychological experience of the world. Mm -hmm. So the biggest thing for me is I know that I can't resist my phone. If I know it's there, I am going to go to it. My wife still says to me, you've written this book. What is wrong with you? You still turn to the phone. And she's right because I'm human. <laughs> so the, the best thing I can do is during dinner time, during the weekend, whenever I can do this, I try to keep my phone as far away from me as possible. And I do that. I, I do it a fair amount. So I'll, I, I'll try not to keep it next to my bed at night. I will try to spend much of the weekend, especially when I'm with my kids with the phone, either on airplane modes so that I don't know that I'm getting any messages. Mm -hmm. So I, I can use it as a camera and to film them. That's the biggest thing is, is spending as, as much time turning the phone into a brick as you can. And when you have it nearby, sort of defang it. If there are certain apps, there's a script you follow with those apps. You go from Instagram to Facebook to Twitter to Snapchat and back round again, and you keep getting into this loop. Then put them as far apart as possible from each other. Bury them in the fifth screen on your phone. 
make them as hard to find as possible. Every three weeks, change where they are. Basically, introduce your own friction. Undo what the tech companies are doing. If they're removing as much friction as possible, well, reintroduce it. Turn your phone on black or black and white mode, which makes it much less uh, enticing. Turn off all your notifications except the absolutely critical ones that you feel you can't do without. So you're, what you're effectively doing is you're mitigating all of the effects that are brought into your life by the tech companies, unpicking them one step at a time. And that's what we do in, in my family. In Drunk Tank Pink, Adam talks about attention restoration therapy as an antidote to the decision demands of modern life. It also seems useful as an antidote to our tech use. I asked him to explain what it means. Yeah, attention restoration therapy basically argues that much of what we do during the day saps us of our ability to exert self-control or control over the environment. And a lot of that comes from the kind of attention that you exert when you navigate the world in general. So if you think about living in a city or being in a place with other people, you're constantly trying not to bump into them. You're trying to cross the road without getting hit by a car. You're doing all sorts of things to survive in this world, basically, to navigate the world. And all of that, each successive little thing that you do in that context takes a little bit of a resource that's finite and it ebbs over time. And so that by the end of the day, you basically don't have much left. It's hard for you to make decisions. It's hard for you to exert self-control. You're more likely to eat badly. You're less likely to do the tasks you set out to do. You're more likely to sit in front of your phone for hours and so on. So attention restoration therapy suggests that there's a way to undo some of that. And the the biggest driver of that undoing process, that replenishment comes from nature. Mm. So the way you do this is you spend time in natural environments, in forests, in a place where there is running water, by the ocean. And if you're in an urban area, you don't have those options. Put a potted plant in your home, have a little, the sound of running water. That's a different kind of attention. It still draws your attention to that thing, whatever it is, but it's in the background and it, it turns out to be quite restorative and there's quite a lot of evidence for that. And so I always say at the end of a lot of the talks I give on technology, what's the antidote here? The antidote is to spend some time in a natural environment or at least in an environment where based on what you're seeing with your eyes, you have no idea what year it is. There's a timelessness to what you're looking at. I can see right now that I have lights and I have cameras and I have all sorts of things that tell me it's roughly 2021. But when I go later on today to the beach for a run, that is the same beach, the same run that people could have done a thousand years ago in theory. And there's mm. a timelessness to that. And I, I think that's something we should all try to approach for at least part of the day. We finish with one final question for Adam. What does productivity mean to him? Productivity for me is a retrospective thing where at the end of a period where I'm meant to be doing something, I ask myself, did you achieve what you were looking for? And the reason I like that definition is because it's very flexible. And so sometimes I'll go into a writing period where I'll say, I want to write a thousand words. I'm going to spend a few hours doing that. I know there's going to have to be some research in there, which means I need the internet. Now, I know that slows me down. It's going to be harder to write. And so when I look back and I've written only 500 words in four hours, I can look back and say, well, yeah, that makes total sense because I was slowed down by having to do all this research, but I'm happy with the product. And so in retrospect, that was fine. That was productive. But sometimes when I have the ideas and I've done all the research and I say, right, there's not going to be any internet active here. I'm going to turn off all of my browsers. It's just going to be me and the document. Then I have a completely different definition. And in retrospect, I can say, well, if I didn't achieve that thousand words or whatever, and that, that wasn't very productive. And writing is hard. You know, if you're writing a book, I'm working on my third book now. So that's hundreds of thousands of words of writing and all sorts of academic articles as well for me is is not it's not easy it doesn't come extremely easily 
So I expect there to be friction built into the process. There'll be these bursts where suddenly 2,000 words just spill out of you, and then you'll go for a week or a month, depending, and you will write five words, and then you'll unpick them and go back to where you were. So I'm okay with that staccato output. It's a little bit like looking at, at market performance in the stock market. You've really got to focus on the long term. And as long as I can look back and say, well, that was a good month or a good three months, then I'm okay. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely fascinating. A real privilege to talk to you. I'm, I'm very grateful. Thanks so much for inviting me, Georgie. I appreciate it. That was fun. Thank you for joining us on Freedom Matters. If you like what you hear, then subscribe on your favourite platform. And until next time, we wish you happy, healthy and productive days. <laughs>